This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend Infamy by Richard Reeves. Though the book does use a term, internment, that we'll discuss today is not entirely applicable to the situation of Japanese Americans during World War II, it's still hard to beat in terms of bringing together a large volume of excellent and touching primary sources to provide what I think is a great historical look at a dark historical moment. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 208, Across the Sea, part 4. As we've talked about on this podcast before, the plan launched by the Imperial Japanese Navy to strike at Pearl Harbor was a gamble, a roll of the dice betting that a crippling blow on a key naval base in the Pacific would be so demoralizing and debilitating for the American war effort that the American government would eventually sue for peace. Also, as we've covered before on this podcast, that turned out to be an extremely bad bet. However, our goal today is not to talk about the Pacific War, at least not directly. Today we're going to focus on the domestic response to Pearl Harbor in the United States, and the way in which that response manifested as, and I'm guessing I'm tipping my hand a bit here, one of the most repugnant policies ever undertaken by the government of the United States. So initially, the reaction to Pearl Harbor was one of unqualified rage. I have lost count of the number of variations I've heard on my granddad heard about Pearl Harbor and headed down to the recruitment office on that very day. But before long, that rage gave way to a kind of quiet fear, a fear of further Japanese strikes on the U.S. coast. That fear was grounded in a dual-faced racism that was well-identified by John Dower in his book on race in the Pacific War, called War Without Mercy. He pointed out a tendency among Americans to label the Japanese as, on the one hand, inferior, as mad or subhuman idiots who dared to challenge the supreme power in the Pacific, if not the world, and whose foolish idiocy would see them crushed. But, on the other hand, There was also a tendency to view the Japanese as superhuman in a certain way, more coordinated, more brutal, tougher than Americans were. The rapid Japanese victories in Southeast Asia seemed to suggest that Japanese troops could really do the impossible. Of course, they would have to do the impossible to strike the U.S. West Coast, 
I still see this come up sometimes in discussions of World War II, and it does bear repeating, serious plans to attack the U.S. West Coast were never considered in Tokyo. The closest they ever came was an attempt to use high-altitude firebomb balloons carried by the jet stream. 9,300 of those killed a grand total of six Americans, a family on a picnic who happened to come across one and very likely prodded it without realizing what it was. An actual attack by the Japanese Navy would have exposed the smaller Japanese Navy to a potential American counterattack, inviting losses that Japan could not sustain, because remember, they knew their fleet was outnumbered by the Americans, and were counting on the Americans devoting most of their strength to Germany. A ground attack was even more unlikely. Remember, most of the Imperial Japanese Army is still in China at this time. Moving them out would have required two impossible things. The army agreeing to withdraw from China, and the army agreeing to cooperate with the navy on literally anything. Remember, these are military services that ran competing atomic bomb programs because they couldn't conceive of cooperating with each other on what was basically a theoretical math exercise. But fear, of course, is irrational, and so fear of renewed Japanese attacks began to grip the west coast. But the target of that fear wasn't just the forces of the Japanese Empire. It was fear of the enemy within, the Nikkeijin living in the United States. Now, as war with Japan loomed closer and closer, a variety of government agencies had taken it upon themselves to see if Nikkeijin posed a real threat. At least three different government agencies, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Office of Naval Intelligence, and Military Intelligence Division, had launched investigations in the 1930s as to whether Nikkeijin communities would act as fifth columnists for the Imperial Army. If you don't know that word, fifth columnist, it comes from the Spanish Civil War, when General Emilio Mola, aligned with the Nationalists, was marching on the nation's capital at Madrid with four columns of soldiers, and proclaimed that he had a fifth column of loyalists inside the city itself. None of these investigations found any degree of likelihood of sabotage by Nikkeijin, nor did a whole separate report, the wordly if accurately titled Report on Japanese on the West Coast of the United States, commissioned by President Roosevelt and spearheaded by Detroit businessman Curtis Munson, who has lent his name to the far less wordy shorthand name, the Munson Report. As war started to look more likely in the spring of 1941, Roosevelt, spurred on by worries among senior advisors regarding the loyalty of Nikkei communities, asked a journalist and friend, John Franklin Carter, to head a special commission to investigate and write up whatever he could find on the subject of Nikkei loyalties. Carter in turn selected Munson to be his eyes on the ground. Munson spent several months on the West Coast, interviewing ONI officers, FBI investigators, local officials, and others, though pointedly, no actual Nikkeijin. His conclusions were pretty straightforward. Quote, As interview after interview piled up, those bringing in results began to call it the same old tune. The story was all the same. There is no Japanese problem on the coast. There will be no armed uprising of Japanese. To get more specific, Munson divided the Nikkei population into three groups. Issei, first-generation immigrants. Nisei, 
second generation immigrants, Sansei, the third generation, and Kibei, a special type of Nisei born in the U.S. but largely educated in Japan. Since at this point Sansei were mostly children, the grandchildren of the original sets of Japanese immigrants, Munson dismissed them. Regarding Issei, he wrote that they were, quote, considerably weakened in their loyalty to Japan by the fact that they have chosen to make this their home and have brought up their children here, they expect to die here, end quote. Nisei were, quote, universally estimated from 90 to 98% loyal to the United States if the Japanese-educated element of the Kibei is excluded. The Nisei are particularly eager to show this loyalty. They are not Japanese in culture. They are foreigners to Japan, end quote. Kibei he labeled as more dangerous and the most likely to be saboteurs, but also wrote, quote, that many of those who visited Japan subsequent to their early American education come back with added loyalty to the United States. In fact, it is a saying that all a Nisei needs is a trip to Japan to make a loyal American out of him, end quote. The final report crossed Roosevelt's desk on November 7th, exactly one month before Pearl Harbor. However, at the top of the report was a one-page summary written by John Franklin Carter, the original head of the investigation. That one-page summary was substantially more alarmist than Munson's actual report. It too said that there was no Japanese problem on the coast, but also highlighted one of Munson's conclusions out of context, noting that, quote, there are still Japanese in the United States who will tie dynamite around their waists and make a human bomb, but today they are few, end quote, while also noting, quote, your reporter is horrified to note that dams, bridges, harbors, power stations, etc., are wholly unguarded everywhere, end quote. That dynamite thing is in the original report, but it refers not to Nikkeijin, but to actual agents of the Japanese Empire, Japanese nationals working outside of the Nikkei community. Anyway, it's pretty hard to be sure what Roosevelt actually read. The Roosevelt White House played things pretty close to the chest, and Roosevelt himself very rarely let others know the entirety of what he was thinking. It's commonly suspected, though of course impossible to prove, that Carter's one-page summary, rather than the whole report, was the only thing that the president actually read. Munson, incidentally, continued in this line of work after Pearl Harbor. He was dispatched to Hawaii to write a separate report on the Nikkei community there. His conclusions were basically identical. He wrote that the fact that Hawaii's massive Nikkei community hadn't engaged in any partisan activity after the outbreak of war was all the proof that was needed that his original conclusions were completely correct. The second Munson report made its way in pieces to Washington, D.C. from December 1941 to February 1942. Munson's conclusions, however, were cast aside by the president. Precisely why is hard to identify for all the reasons outlined above, but he seems to have been won over by other cabinet members, led by Western Defense Commander John L. DeWitt, who argued that dealing with Nikkei communities was a matter of military necessity for fear that key military installations on the West Coast would be sabotaged, despite, again, the lack of any evidence of saboteurs. Instead, on February 19, 1942, Roosevelt released Executive Order 9066. 
the key text of the order is as follows. Quote, By virtue of the authority vested in me as President of the United States, I hereby authorize and direct the Secretary of War and the military commanders whom he may from time to time designate, whenever he or any designated commander deems such action necessary or desirable, to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine, from which any or all persons may be excluded, and with respect to which the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave, shall be subject to whatever restrictions the Secretary of War or the appropriate military commander may impose in his discretion." End quote. In other words, the order set up restricted zones from which any or all persons may be excluded. The next month, after all of one hour of what I'm sure was very serious debate, Congress passed a law granting the President the power to enforce that order. So what did that mean in practice? Well, the entire west coast of the United States was deemed to be of strategic importance due to the number of military bases on the coast, from Bremerton, Washington, down to San Diego, California. Specifically, the western halves of Washington and Oregon, the most densely settled part of both states, all of California, and the southern chunk of Arizona were all labeled as strategically significant, and anybody deemed to be dangerous had to be kicked out of that buffer zone to protect all those strategic assets. Now it is worth noting that the order does not specify an ethnicity of all of these dangerous people, and some Italian-Americans and German-Americans were detained, as well as German and Italian non-American citizens. Around 3,000 from the Italian group and around 11,000 from the German one, including, ironically, some German Jews who had fled the Nazis, since the War Department sent a rather silly distinction between German ethnicity and Jewish religion. However, both of those contingents were dwarfed by the nearly 100,000 Nikkei who were, within the span of six months, told that they had a limited time to pack their bags and move wherever the federal government told them to move. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to an interesting omission from all of this. Despite the fact that it's home to a highly significant naval base that would be the launch point for all counteroffensives against Japan, and the American base the Japanese actually attacked, as well as a massive Nikkei population, Hawaii was not part of this zone. Its Nikkei population, some 37% of the island's total population, was never rounded up en masse, primarily because doing so would have required shipping 150,000 people back to the continent. Smaller contingents of Nikkei were, but the entire community was never uprooted in the same way that happened on the continent. That's not to say that they faced no persecution. Hawaii was placed under martial law right after Pearl Harbor and remained under it until 1944. And remember, Hawaii's not a state yet, so all of the fun protections that apply to state governments aren't yet there in World War II. Nikkei Hawaiians faced a wide variety of discriminatory practices under this martial law. Blackouts, mandatory curfews, prohibitions on non-citizen Issei meeting in groups larger than 10, bans on Nikkei living on certain parts of the islands, forcing Nikkei families that own land in those areas into short sale, prohibitions from going out on boats, which made life rather difficult, to say the least, for Nikkei fishermen, 
prohibitions on owning guns, flashlights, or anything that could be used for espionage, and, most odiously to me at least, suspension of both the right of habeas corpus, which prevents you from being detained without a charge, and the right to trial by jury, both of which are explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution of the United States. Now before we get into describing what actually happened as a result of this order, there's a short discussion we need to have regarding terminology, specifically the word internment. You see, the common descriptor for all of this is Japanese-American internment. However, that terminology is often deservedly attacked in American Nikkei communities for two reasons. First, it comes off as a weak-kneed euphemism. It wasn't that bad, they were just interned. Second, as Yoshinori Himmel points out in his excellent article on the subject, internment has an actual meaning in international law. It's the holding of foreign aliens as prisoners by another state during wartime. For example, officials of the Japanese government, who were Japanese citizens at the time of Pearl Harbor, like the ambassador to Washington, Nomura Kichisaburo, were interned in camps and then swapped with Japan at a neutral port for Americans who had been in Japan, as was standard practice. In addition, about one-third of the Nikkei community were non-citizen Issei, who were legally interned. The Issei interned in this fashion were held by the Department of Justice, not the War Relocation Authority set up by the War Department. For example, Yoshinori Himmel himself had a grandfather, Henry Jiroshiga, an Issei who immigrated from Japan and lived in Seattle as a businessman. He was interned by the U.S. government for being a Japanese national, taken to a series of undisclosed places, and eventually tracked down by his children in a DOJ internment camp near Bismarck, North Dakota. He petitioned for release from that internment camp, and while he was eventually granted parole, his assets remained frozen, however, and as a result, he had to be supported by his children, two daughters, and their American GI husbands. Eventually, he would die in 1945, still proclaiming in his heart that he was a loyal American, and still unfree. That's an example of what could happen to Issei families. What about Nisei families and their Sansei families, all of whom were legal American citizens, thanks to the magic of the 14th Amendment? Some Nikkei use the term concentration camp to describe where their families were held, which, unsurprisingly, gets some pushback because of the connection of that term to the horrors of Nazism. However, the Nazis themselves were using concentration camp as a euphemism. They did not invent that term. Its usage in modern war dates back to the 19th century. For example, during the Boer War in South Africa, the British forcibly relocated Dutch Afrikaner civilians into camps to prevent them from abetting the Boer insurrection. I do think it's also important for us to note that while the U.S. government certainly never embraced anything like the Final Solution, there was definitely a profoundly racist component to all of this, and you do come up against a couple of remarks in the historical record that really make you wonder exactly what some people in charge of this whole operation thought they were doing. Like General DeWitt, that commander of the Western Defense Area, who referred to Japanese Americans by saying, quote, we must worry about the Japanese all the time until he is wiped off the map, unquote. So again, emphatically, not the final solution, 
not anything approaching the horrors of Nazi death camps, but I can see why there are people who like to use that term. Personally, I rather like Dr. Himmel's approach. It's a bit wordy, but mass extrajudicial incarceration does capture the reality of what was happening. It was large-scale, it was outside of the law, and in the final assessment, these people were being held as prisoners without any legal rights. As a side note, I see occasional, though thankfully rarer and rarer, references to all of this as Japanese internment, but I really want to emphasize only one-third of the people in question were Japanese. The rest were Americans, and there is no half-citizenship in this country for recent immigrants. On a purely personal level, that, more than anything else, strikes me as what is really reprehensible about Executive Order 9066. It is a violation of the animating spirit behind the United States, the Constitution, and everything the ideas contained therein are supposed to stand for. So with all that said, what does this look like on the ground? I don't think I could say it better than the people who lived it, so here are their voices. Mary Tsukamoto, who was held at a camp in Arkansas, described her feelings upon arrival at what would be her home for a year and a half. Quote, We saw all these people behind the fence, looking out, hanging on to the wire, and looking out because they were anxious to know who was coming in. But I will never forget the shocking feeling that human beings were behind this fence like animals, and we were going to also lose our freedom and walk inside of that gate and find ourselves cooped up in there. When the gates were shut, we knew that we had lost something that was very precious, that we were no longer free, unquote. Saburo Masada, who was taken in March 1942 from his home in Fresno, described two instances where interned Nikkei were shot for trying to escape. One, a partially deaf man, was trying to rescue a stray dog who had escaped from the fenced-off area of their camp. The other was a young boy trying to retrieve a ball that had rolled up to but not beyond the fence. Pat Morita, whose name you might recognize because he would go on to play Mr. Miyagi in the original Karate Kid movies, was diagnosed with a form of tuberculosis and was in the hospital when the war broke out. He described his experience as follows, quote, I was escorted from the hospital by an FBI guy to join my parents at an internment camp in the middle of Arizona. And I, well... What did kids know about wars? I was happy to be walking. I felt like I was some kind of big deal. The first one I was in was called Gila. Uncle Sam and we Americans like to use euphemistic words, so we called them relocation centers. They were America's version of concentration camps. We were moved from there to Thule Lake, and I was too young to understand these things. End quote. Isamu Noguchi a tremendously talented Nikkei sculptor who was already quite famous when the war broke out, was a resident of New York, and thus not subject to Executive Order 9066, despite the fact that there are some military installations in New York, including the very important West Point Military Academy. So despite the fact that he was not interned, Noguchi argued and lobbied against Executive Order 9066, and when that failed, he voluntarily entered the Postin War Relocation Center to try and start up an arts program to make the place a more pleasant area to live. His efforts to do so were constantly frustrated. 
His words in a letter to a friend while inside the camp are, well, very articulate. Quote, To be a hybrid anticipates the future. This is America, the nation of all nationalities. The racial and cultural intermixture is the antithesis of all the tenets of the Axis powers. For us to fall into the fascist line of race bigotry is to defeat our unique personality and strength. Unquote. There are many, many more stories I could tell. Densho.org has a fantastic set of interviews with transcripts that I highly recommend perusing. I didn't even approach the story of America's most famous incarcerated Nikkei, George Takei, and that pains me to do because I love him, Star Trek, and everything that Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future stands for. But we have some other things to talk about before we end today. First and foremost, the case of Fred Korematsu. Korematsu was born in Oakland, California, and was 22 when Pearl Harbor took place. He'd already received a draft notice the year beforehand, but been rejected from active duty because he had chronic stomach ulcers. Instead, he got a job as a shipyard welder to aid the war effort, but was fired after a couple of months for security reasons. When he got a new job, he was fired after less than a week when his supervisor came back from vacation, and after Pearl Harbor, he couldn't find a job at all. When the order came down, Korematsu decided not to comply, and went into hiding for several months before being spotted in San Francisco and arrested on May 30th. While in prison, he was approached by the American Civil Liberties Union, whose representatives asked Korematsu if he would be willing to be the focus of a court case on the legality of the order. Korematsu versus the United States government made its way eventually all the way to the Supreme Court. In the meantime, Korematsu himself was incarcerated in the Central Utah War Relocation Center. His room was a converted horse stall, and he is said to have quipped of it, quote, jail was better than this. In the final case in 1944, the judges of the Supreme Court decided 6-3 to three that while Executive Order 9066 was constitutionally suspect, the present circumstances of war emergency meant that the president did enjoy broad discretion to defend the country by any means he felt necessary. The court also explicitly rejected the term concentration camp. Hugo Black, who wrote the majority decision, wrote, quote, we deem it unjustifiable to call them concentration camps with all the ugly connotations that term implies, unquote. However, Black and the others on the majority did make a paint of saying only that it was acceptable to exclude Japanese Americans from certain parts of the country. Indefinite detainment? Well, that was not yet clear. Black's verdict on the case tarnished his career for the rest of his life, as did a scandal that came out after he was confirmed as a Supreme Court justice when a newspaper reporter revealed that Black was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Today, Korematsu versus the United States is heralded with such vaunted praise as, quote, an odious and discredited artifact of popular bigotry, quote, a stain on American jurisprudence, and my personal favorite, which describes its, quote, uniquely bad legal status, meaning that it is not precedent even though it has not been overturned, unquote. 
Korematsu's case is the best known example of a challenge to a wartime treatment of Nikkei communities, but it's not the only one. Two separate courses brought by Gordon Hirabayashi and Minoru Yasui, aptly titled Hirabayashi vs. the United States and Yasui vs. the United States, challenged curfews against Nikkeijin. The convictions of both men for violating their curfews were upheld. However, there was one win called Ex Parte Endo, in which Mitsue Endo won in 1944. Endo was a Nisei who had never been to Japan and spoke no Japanese, and in her case the court found that she could not be detained because nobody could conclude that she was not conceitedly loyal to the United States government. However, at the same time that all these cases were being decided, the incarceration regime was already being dismantled. By 1944, it was clear that the Japanese couldn't reach the West Coast, even if they wanted to, and that one way or another, America had won the war. The relocation centers were slowly closed down, though Nikkeijin were not allowed to return to the West Coast until 1945. When they did, in many cases their property had not been respected. Land, abandoned by its owners, had been confiscated and resold. Businesses had gone under. Life simply could not be picked up and restarted from where it had left off. There are two final things I want to talk about today. First, despite the fact that their community was terribly treated by the American government during the war, patriotic Nikkei joined the community in huge numbers. The all-Nikkei 442nd Regimental Combat Team is to this day the most decorated military unit in the history of the United States. Highlighting the stories of these Nikkei veterans who fought for a country that was imprisoning their families, well, that would be beyond the scope of what we can do here. Instead, I'm going to bring up the story of one man who I personally admire very greatly, Daniel Inoue. Inoue, a Hawaiian Nikkei, served as a medical volunteer after Pearl Harbor, in 1943, when the U.S. military dropped its ban on Japanese-American enlistees, he and many other people living in Hawaii or in the camps joined up. He served in the 442nd and had a ridiculously distinguished military career. Specifically, while fighting against holdout German troops in Italy in April 1945, Inoue flanked a fortified German position and managed to take it out, despite being shot in the stomach. He then crawled towards the last remaining German machine gun nest to throw a hand grenade inside. In the process of throwing the grenade, his throwing arm was hit by a German rifle grenade, blowing it clean off. Inoue promptly grabbed the still-live grenade out of his severed arm, chucked it at the Germans, crawled the rest of the distance, and shot the final defenders with his submachine gun, he then told his soldiers to get back to their defensive positions because, quote, nobody called off the war, and then promptly passed out from blood loss. For his actions, Daniel Inoue was awarded the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, and the Distinguished Service Cross, which was then upgraded to the Medal of Honor, the highest military decoration of the United States, by President Bill Clinton 50 years after the fact. After the war, he had to give up on his dream of becoming a surgeon, since, you know, he was missing an arm. Instead, he studied law, went into politics, and eventually became one of the senators for the new state of Hawaii.
Though Inoue himself was still deservedly in recovery when this happened, the 442nd also helped liberate several concentration camps during the final collapse of Germany. The irony of which, I imagine, was not lost on them. The heroism of Nikkei soldiers deserves to be remembered, but so does one other thing. The United States government, though it took far too long, eventually did apologize for its behavior. Roosevelt himself suspended Executive Order 9066, but left it on the books. Gerald Ford, however, outright rescinded the order. His successor, Jimmy Carter, created a commission to study what had happened and decide on recommendations. That commission found that Executive Order 9066 had been based on racial prejudice and hysteria, recommended an official apology, and a payment of $20,000 to every surviving detainee, which, adjusted for inflation, would be a little over $70,000 today. In a display of bipartisanship, Carter's successor, Ronald Reagan, signed a bill implementing those recommendations in 1988, and his successor, George H.W. Bush, passed an appropriations bill funding the payments, and sent a letter of apology along with every single check. This is particularly noteworthy because the American government rarely, if ever, apologizes for its actions. I did some digging and could find literally five other times in all of American history when the government has issued some kind of apology for a past action. If you're curious, examples would be a 2008 House of Representatives resolution apologizing for slavery and a 1983 apology for protecting the Nazi-turned-American informant Klaus Barbie from arrest after World War II. In the long history of somewhat shady things the American government has done, this stands out as an idea so uniquely bad that everyone condemns it. I can't say everyone, of course. Certain politicians in recent years have walked back on the issue and described Executive Order 9066 as a necessary security measure in wartime, despite, again, the lack of any evidence that that's true. I think what we've talked about here, however, underscores something really important. This was a policy grounded in racism, not facts, and one that accomplished nothing so much as removing the talents of some of America's most loyal citizens at a time when we needed them most. It stands, I think, as a lesson to future generations. I only hope we can learn it well. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. I also have a very special announcement this week. You can still find the podcast at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapan, but our official web presence has moved. Historyofjapan.wordpress.com is still out there, but for the most up-to-date information, check out isaacmeyer.net. I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net. All future podcast information is going up there, not on WordPress, and it will be a hub in the future for other projects beyond this podcast that I'm hoping to start. So check it out, drop me a line, let me know what you think of the design, and if there are any technical glitches in terms of getting this episode and all the sources out on time, Please accept my apology. I don't know how this internet thing works, and I'm trying to fit it all into the tube as fast as I can. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we wrap this series up.